Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And as we do every year, this last episode of the year is going to wrap up this year's mega trends. What was it in 2022 and what do we expect for 2023? And we're fortunate to be joined by renowned global commentator, columnist for the New York Times, Tom Friedman, for this special episode. But before we ask Tom to look at his crystal ball, we'll set the stage with eight megatrends that our team selected as those that dominated 22 and that we think are going to continue way into 2023 and maybe even beyond that. Peter, these topics definitely reflect what is now a global consensus, and it's the fact that the big issues of our time transcend borders. They transcend countries, geographies. A few years ago at our end-of-the-year episode, we were focused more on leaders like Angela Merkel or anti-leaders like Trump. And this really sounds like old news now, not just because they're gone from the political scenario, but because the topics we discuss are less about people and countries, but about the trans-political macro trends that sweep through our very convoluted world. And of course, our selections do not cover everything. We at Altima are a little bit arbitrary, and we do look forward to your feedback on what we've skipped or stuff that we've overdone. But this is our attempt to be scrappy and reduce the list to eight preeminent megatrends in no particular order. Okay, but wait, Taya and Mooney, before before I start the list, I I, want to point out that I think that there is a something that ties this grocery list together, and that's the fact that the world has experienced a massive diffusion of power, where traditional powers are waning and new players are emerging. It doesn't mean that old powers like America, Russia aren't important. Of course, they're important, but what it does mean is that new players are taking slices of the power pie for themselves. And of course, we've seen that and covered that on Altamar, the economic and political growth of China from multiple angles. Notwithstanding the demographic challenges and the mistakes in the zero COVID policy, China continues to assert its new muscle. Indeed, if you just look around and read the headlines, China, Russia, and Iran are now new bedfellows. And we were watching just a few weeks ago when Saudi Arabia and China, as their two leaders, wrapped up a meeting in early December. And remember that the combination economies of China, India, Indonesia, Turkey, Brazil, and Mexico overtook the G7 economies by a long shot. Europe is experiencing economic issues and the U.S. is mired in domestic problems. Power and agendas go far beyond border. The world looks different today, and it's going to change even more in 2023. Okay, now I'll stop pontificating. Here are our megatrends. I'm going to go first with shifting demographics, crazy shifting immigration, and displacement. We've bundled these three phenomena together because all of them have created significant impact and are going to shape politics for the next decade. More people in the world, more megacities, more migrant workers, more human rights issues, more xenophobia are all impacting politics and law, dividing entire communities, feeding into extremist parties and creating tensions within families and nations. 
Number two, an obvious one, economic uncertainty. Are we on the verge of a global recession? Will it happen mostly in Europe, like some people forecast, and only mildly in the U.S.? Is the idea of a downturn overstated? The IMF World Economic Outlook forecasts that global economic growth will slow from 3.2% this year, which wasn't great, to 2.7% next year. And most of the downturn is, unfortunately, in the world's largest economy. The forecast for this is cloudy. The future of China, great or not great? I vote for very uncertain. The latest blow is the news that China's exports and imports shrank at their steepest pace in the last two and a half years, a much worse downturn than expected. At the same time, this COVID zero policy exploded um, as unprecedented protests broke out all over the country, forcing the government to reverse some of its draconian rules. Additionally, there are signs of a demographic implosion with the Chinese population reducing by up to 400 million people by 2050. But the Chinese government has set 5% growth targets. Again, uncertainty in the world's economic engine. Next is the ultimate megatrend, energy goes green. How is the race for renewables creating a shift in global politics and how fast the world transition from oil and gas to electricity is going to happen and who will be the winners and losers? The invasion of Ukraine underlines this question and made everything a lot more urgent. And China seems well positioned already. Russia stands to lose. Saudi Arabia is getting cozy with China. And in the US, the roadblock, of course, like everything, is partisan politics. The developing world, so dependent on fossil fuels, will take longer to complete an energy transition. And that would take a huge kit on their economies. The race towards alternative energy has shifted geopolitics. We just really don't know what that map will look like in the near future. Number five, guys, tech's bumpy ride. I mean, the digital space has seen more battles than the World Cup, which we just finished watching. On the political end, China and Russia are the two main characters in tech politics, even as Europe tries to create these digital alliances with Western allies. You could say that tech is also a proxy war in the world's geopolitical feud. I mean, let's focus on the corporate end. These days, it's all about the collapse of Twitter, um, earlier was meta struggles and making the public feel like these platforms are really imploding from within. Crypto is not faring well, uh, but great online campaigns are, are being seen in the Ukraine war to protest in China, outrage in Iran. You know, they're really technology is becoming a tool for social change from mass resignations and tanking stock and declining ad revenue. The industry doesn't look very promising. It's very confusing. But the positive social impact on the Ukraine war, these Iran restrictions, Chinese COVID policy and the LGBTQ movement cannot be denied. So tech is a big, big place to watch. One of my favorites is that I think it really is a big mega trend to see and look at what's happening in Africa today. We know that Africa's population is going to double by 2050 with an extraordinarily young population. We've seen moves in Africa that the rest of the world needs to watch. They managed to sign a large free trade agreement when global trade seems to have fallen completely out of favor and they've opened the path through that agreement to 
have real poverty alleviation, and the tremendous toll of COVID on the continent led to constructive policies and programs in many countries despite multiple headwinds, digital innovation, economic reforms, new infrastructure, and most importantly, integration and a global engagement opened the door in Africa for a brighter future. We will end on a, a mega, mega trend, uh, which we have called everything washing. We, it started with greenwashing. We talked about that this year, describing how companies pretend to be sustainable to appease their shareholders, their customers, their community. Then came sports washing. We also talked about this, in which hosting champions and creating sports leagues became an exercise in nation building among some unsavory world leaders. And then there's rainbow washing, referring to companies who use the pride label as a gimmick for sales. So then, and I could go on, but these are all phony causes for self-interested reasons that are tarnishing the legitimate efforts at making the world a better place. And I know when we were preparing for this episode, we said seven megatrends. I'm adding one eighth one, uh, which affects directly 51% of the global population. That's nearly 4 billion people. What trend could it be? It is women's rights. And 2022 really showed some positive strides towards gender equality. Several Latin American countries made legal progress towards a women's right to choose. Uh, there was a constitutional change in Chile. The Supreme Court decriminalized it in Colombia. And in 2021, just right before this year, Argentina and Mexico led the way. And then just before the end of this year, the women of Iran were named Time Magazine's Heroes of the Year for leading mass protests over the death of Masa Amini in the custody of the country's morality police. But we're far from where we need to be. By the end of 2022, nearly 400 million women and girls will live in extreme poverty that's on less than $2 a day. The U.S. Supreme Court tore down Roe v. Wade, the legal protection for a woman's right to choose, setting the United States back in decades in terms of social values. We have so many other topics to cover. We're missing extremism. We're missing global food trends, art activism, criminal, transnational criminal groups. It's, it's, it's such a long list. But we need to save time and we need to move to our great guest, Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman is an internationally renowned author, reporter, and New York Times columnist. He's the recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes, two for international reporting from the Middle East, and a third for his columns written about 9-11. He's the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, and most recently, Thank You for Being Late. Everyone listens to what Tom Friedman has to say, and we certainly have a lot to cover. Tom, thank you for joining us on Altamar, the end-of-year episode. Great, great to be with you, as long as it's not the end of day's episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, we selected eight mega trends to focus for this episode and, and from global politics to sports. What, what do you think your biggest concerns are in coming out of 2022 and moving into 2023? What makes you worried and what makes you hopeful? Um, so what makes me worried, let's start there, is that, you know, I've often asked Peter, is the world still flat? Uh, to which I say, are you kidding? Are you not paying attention? Uh, we have connected every node in the world now. Then we took out the buffers. And then we still did the crazy stuff we do. And so now, and by the way, we placed the buffers with Greece. So now instability in one node gets instantly transmitted to the whole system whether it was a pathogen out of Wuhan, China, or financial contagion. 
So the world's never been more wired together, and that that makes it more fragile in some ways. That's that's a big concern of mine. But I also end the year with actually a, a bit of optimism. It comes out of our recent midterm elections. Uh, we saw an expression of civic health that no one predicted, that no one anticipated, but that was remarkable. Principled Republicans, principled independents, principled Democrats went into the voting booth, identified who was an election denier, whether at the state or local or federal level, and in virtually every case, not all, but virtually every case, identified those people and made sure they weren't elected. And um, that is a sign of civic health that um, it buoys me. I, it was very close. Some of them were by a few thousand votes, but I take a, a lot of sucker for that going into the new year. Yeah, I do too. I, 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 the return of uh, splitting tickets is yes. certainly something that was that is a totally non-predicted. Let, let, let me ask you, you recently wrote a column entitled How China Lost America, and it, it described the end of China, China's integration to the West and to the, to the international system. Walk us through what, why you think that's so important. Well, um, first of all, I always start with the fact, uh, Peter, I don't actually like to use the term China. I much prefer one-sixth of humanity who speak Chinese. Let's talk about the real scale here. We're talking about one out of every six people on the planet. This is not like uh, Ivory Coast we're talking about, okay? So what happens in China affects all of us. Uh, if China rises or falls, will affect the mortgage on your house uh, to the cost of the shoes on your feet or the solar panels on your roof. So I take what's going on there very seriously. Now, my view is that the years 1979 to 2019 were an epoch in U.S.-China relations. It was an epic of unconscious integration. That is, a U.S. Uh, entrepreneur could say, I, I want to start a business in China. Just do it. I want to have a supply chain from China. Just do it. I want to import food for my restaurant from China. Just do it. I want to send my kid to university at Fudan or Tsinghua. Just do it. I want to travel to China as a journalist. Just do it. And conversely, Chinese could say, I want to be listed on the NASDAQ. Just do it. I want to own a factory in Ohio. Just do it. So we basically, over those 40 years, America and China became the real one economy, two systems, not China, Hong Kong. And a byproduct of that integration were two things. More people, hundreds of millions of people, by some estimates, 800 million people, came out of poverty faster, abject poverty, than any time in the history of the world. And there was no great power conflict. That is, we had wars, but there was no power between any, any, any conflict between any great powers, direct conflict. As four decades go, it's pretty good four decades. We will miss it when it's gone. And it's going. Um, it's going primarily uh, for two reasons. One is because of China's own development has become a pure economic and military power. And it's the nature of geopolitics and, and relations between humans that um, whenever we see a rival going back to our days as, um, you know, cavemen sitting around the campfire, you know, we get a little antsy when we see someone um, rising to an economic or military peer. So that, that's part of it. Uh, but we particularly get antsy in the case of China because it's, um, it doesn't share our values. So when we were trading with China uh, for most of those years, and for 30 of the 40 years, China sold us the Gallo goods, goods we wore on our shoulders, 
goods we wore on our feet, uh, goods we wore on our ankles, solar panels we put on our roof. We, they sold us shallow goods. We sold them deep goods, uh, goods that went uh, software and computers that went deep into their systems and their government everywhere. Now, as long as China just sold us shallow goods, we actually didn't care whether China was authoritarian, libertarian, or vegetarian. Um, who cared? Uh, we're just buying their shallow stuff, you know what I mean? But then one day the doorbell rang and there was a salesman there. He said, hi, my name is Mr. Huawei. I sell 5G. In fact, I sell 5G as better than anything you have. And I'd like to sell you my 5G. And um, it's going to go into the chatbot in your bedroom, the walls of your house, the sidewalks of your neighborhood, and the um, you know computer systems of your city. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. When, when you just sold us shallow goods, um, you know, we weren't worried. But when you want to sell us deep goods, the fact that we don't share values, we don't share common values, really matters. That's, that's one thing that happened. And the other is that Xi Jinping came to power in China. China today is so much more open than it was 40 years ago. But thanks to Xi, it's now more closed than it was 10 years ago. So he, he took China on a complete reverse in terms of openness to the world. Uh, for the world into China and for China out to the world. And those things together have really ended this 40-year decade of one economy, two countries. Do you feel that there are certain mega trends that you want to point out as we look at 2023 and beyond that policymakers and voters and consumers and citizens of the world cannot ignore? Well, the two shaping megatrends in our world today are, are quite obvious. They're a technology supercycle and a climate supercycle. So in technology, we've developed the ability to basically embed sensors, uh, connectivity, processing power, and acting power into everything. That is, we're putting, we're in the middle of a technology supercycle that's enabled us to sense, connect, digitize, process with AI, learn, share, act into everything into the way you process your food um, and put it out to the way an F-35 um, flies around and can sense everything around it, process that, uh, turn it into learning and acting and sharing. That's going everywhere. And that's a super cycle. And um, as my friend John Kelly from IBM liked to say to me, Tom, you know, for all these years, the world was speaking to us. We just couldn't hear it. Well, we're now going to be able to hear it. You're going to have granular data from your restaurants that you never had before. You, in a couple of years, you're going to have chairs that will tell you when did people get most comfortable. Was it was it when you gave them the empanada, um, or or was it um, you know when they got their drink at the end of the meal? The world has been speaking to us. We just couldn't hear it, and we're now going to be able to hear it. That's a that's a that's a mega trend. And the other, of course, is in climate. So our, the fact that we emit CO2, we melt ice, um, we uh, change ocean currents, we change wind currents, we produce extreme weather. The climate gets weird. We're in the middle of a giant phase of global weirding. And those two are the big megatrends out of which everything else really flows. 
There's um, a lot of talk about this global realignment and how it, there's a diffusion of global power structures, Russia's war, Saudis flexing their muscles. Of course, we just discussed China, Iran's charm offensive with Moscow and Beijing and U.S. political paralysis. But the main kind of trend that that all this has in common is that these right now the power landscape is transnational. It doesn't really it doesn't let itself be described by countries and all of these trends like the health and climate and tech are, are really universal. Can you kind of draw up the power landscape that you see today? Well, you know, what, what you're saying is, is absolutely correct. I mean, that all the big challenges of the world, well, let me start at 30,000 feet. Our condition today as a species is one of interdependence. That is our condition. The only question is, will we rise together or fall together? But whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it together. Those two super cycles I just described in technology and climate have made us interdependent. That's the, the uber, uber trend um, you know, sitting on this planet. And so the big challenge politically is, is can we collaborate um, uh, now as a global species in order to um, manage this technology trend and, and to manage the climate. And one has to be deeply worried about our ability to do that. But at the same time, you know, if you look around the world, yeah, yeah, China's doing its thing, but look what happened. Xi Jinping had to back down on having his own COVID strategy because he was interdependent with a virus that actually, actually, that virus actually didn't know where the China... Hong Kong border was, you know, and so so that's forcing you know uh, China uh, in in a certain direction. And as far as Russia or Saudi Arabia or all of these um, other other guys, look, you know, countries ebb and countries flow, and those countries particularly ebb and flow on the basis of the price of oil. So oil is up right now. So Saudi Arabia has a lot of money and it can act um, uh, in certain ways. Uh, Putin uh, thought he could invade Ukraine and get away with it. But these are all closed systems. And in a rapidly changing world, open systems, I'll bet on, you know, seven days a week because of two reasons. One, in a rapidly changing world, open systems always get the signals first. When you have an open system, you get all the signals of change first. And second, open systems like ours, if we keep it open, hopefully, attract the most high IQ risk takers. And high IQ risk takers are the engine of wealth uh, today. They're people who go out and start crazy restaurants like immigrant foods. That's what high IQ risk takers do. They're crazy people like my wife who starts a museum in Washington to promote reading and literacy called Planet Word. I mean, who the hell does that? So we happen to have a high concentration, the highest in the world of high IQ risk takers. Now, I, I believe that brains actually um, are distributed evenly around the planet. God actually passed them around evenly. What he didn't pass around is the willingness of one country to be open to more of those brains than another. And that's always been the secret America's success. We actually attracted more high IQ risk takers than anybody else. We're not smarter on average. We just attracted more of them. And if we stop doing that, we will revert to the global mean. And that will be very bad for our society, for our income, for everything else. So 
Uh, that's kind of how I see it. So I know we'll go to immigration, which would be a great follow-up to this point, but I want to lower us down from the 30,000 feet to 10,000 feet and look at um, one of the trends that I looked at this year and I think will continue in one of your thoughts. It's women's rights, and it was a big trend in 22. The Supreme Court, of course, shot down Roe v. Wade, while several Latin American countries actually decriminalized abortion. Of course, we saw the mass protests in Iran following the death of, of the young woman there. So how do you view these important developments and what do you see in 2023? Well, you know, we have these contradictory trends. You know, on the one hand, you have, you know, China cracking down on men and women, you know, and you have the amazing uh, uprising in Iran spearheaded by women. You know, both can be happening at the same time. Uh, and so um, I think I, I'm a big believer that the arc of history bends toward freedom. And um, as a columnist, I see it as my job to keep trying to bend it that way. And if you're betting against that, you're betting against human nature. So uh, I'm, I, I think it's good for men and women. I think it's fantastic uh, to see what's going on in Iran right now as an example uh, for the whole region. But uh uh, I think it's part of a of a broader trend that that the danger here is that everyone, because of the nature of technology, is a lot easier to get your freedom from whatever whatever that tyrannical thing is. You can get your freedom from a traditional taxi company and drive for Uber. You can get your freedom from uh, restaurant chains, start your own crazy restaurant. You can get your freedom from uh, the Iranian government. Uh, maybe you can even in China if you dare go out in the street enough, get your freedom from the um, Chinese government. Freedom too is another question. And freedom too is what it's all about because freedom too uh, requires institutions. That is, we are free to start a restaurant in Washington because we have rules and regulations that enable us to do that. We are free to start a company because we have markets that are properly governed. We are free to have an abortion in Maryland because our state legislator has enshrined that in law. And the danger of all these new technologies and protest movements is that they're really good at getting freedom from the old system, but they're really bad at producing freedom too, that is coming together on a new structure that will enable everyone to have their rights. And that's the real tension of it. Tom, one of the benefits of doing an end of the year uh, show is that we get to jump around very uh, kind of diverse topics. And, and I want to take you to the storm clouds of global recession. It seems like every morning on my inbox, there's all kinds of forecasts of what's happening in the world in the future, and uh, whether it's going to be a global recession or if it's going to be kind of different in, in every part of the world. I'd like to hear your take on the level of economic distress that the world is facing and where. Well, we've just finished a, you know, 15 year period, almost 14 years of uh, basically interest-free money um, uh, starting in America, but the whole Western world and then spilling out to the developing world. And that, that era is over. Um, God, it was fun when it lasted, but, uh, but it's over. And we're going to go through a, we're going to normalize here. And it doesn't mean interest rates are going to be 10%, I don't think. Um, but they could be five or six or four for a while. And um, uh, that will affect every entrepreneur, every business, every saver uh, on the upside. 
But uh, clearly, we're going into a new phase when it comes to the cost of money. So we all finished watching the World Cup, and um, Altamar did an episode earlier uh, in December about sports washing. So I wanted to ask you about this greenwashing, sports washing, all these very cool terms um, that are talking about social responsibility, which is something I personally care a lot about. So, you know, tell us how you see that trend. I, I, my previous life, I was in you know financial world, so I saw ESG explode in the last 10 years. How do you see that going forward in 2023? Um, yeah, you know, um, the more globalization, the more the temptation by autocratic regimes to sports wash. But um, I, I don't think it's a very good way to spend your money. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia tried to start a golf league, was accused of sports washing. All they did was take the murder of Khashoggi from the front page to the sports page. Actually, they paid a billion and a half dollars to do that. That's hard to do, you know, spend a billion and a half dollars taking uh, the murder of a dissident from the front page to the sports page. And if Qatar was sports washing by having the um, World Cup in a basically autocratic desert sheikdom, you know, I don't know what return they got. But part of me, at least in the case of Qatar, not Saudi Arabia, because there's nothing uh, even remotely positive one can say about murdering a dissident the way they did. But, you know, Qatar got connected to the world in ways and got exposed to the world in ways that who knows what the long-term implications will be. Now, Qatar is actually not a real place. I mean, it's got 300,000 citizens sitting on a dome of gas. So that's like not a real country. And um, that's that's just sort of a kind of Disney World kind of thing, you know. I wouldn't take that, um, that the world is going to change because those 300,000 countries, you know, somehow, you know, have a, a more open democratic inclination. But, um, you know, the thing about any kind of sports washing or phenomena like that is that it is so hard to hide anything in this world today. Uh, you can spend whatever money you want And in five seconds, someone will be online with the contradiction of it. So it's not a strategy that I think is really very profitable. Tad talked about um, greenwashing, but beyond that, climate change and the growth of renewables were front and center this year. It's been an increasing concern in the world, spurred especially by the war in Ukraine. Which countries stand to gain and lose from the energy revolution? Well, we all stand to gain and lose unless we get our act together. And what this year will actually be remembered for is that it was kind of a come to Jesus moment for the whole green movement. Um, and Lord knows I'm, I'm, I'm a proud member of that movement. But what we learned this year is that um, we need to maximize three things at the same time, our energy security, our climate and environmental security, and our economic security. And there are trade-offs between all three. Oh, Lord, I wish there wasn't. I wish we could go green tomorrow. I wish we could flip a switch. Everything I've been writing for a decade and a half has been tried to promote things in that direction. But we can't. Um, fossil fuels still represent over 80% of all energy production, energy usage in the world today. That's eight zero. That's after a decade and a half of all these you know, new green technologies and energy efficiency. Green energy efficiency, energy in general, is a scale challenge. If you don't have scale, you have a hobby. And uh, I like hobbies. I used to build model airplanes. But I wouldn't try to change the climate as a hobby. 
And so you got to be very tough-minded about this. And as a result, we we are going to have to have a transition from where we are now to where we want to be. I hope it can happen as fast as possible. But our mantra should be, how do we green the transition? Okay. Because if you, if you go cold turkey tomorrow on oil and gas, uh, you will raise prices, you know, for these products that are still used by so many people around the world in ways that will crush them economically. I, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish everyone could live on wind and solar, but they can't. And so we need to be very realistic about this. And our priority right now should be how do we green the transition? How do we make the transition from fossil fuels to renewables as fast as we can, at the scale we can, in the greenest way we can? That's how, that's our challenge, uh, if you look at it realistically. And um, if you think it's just flipping a switch um, because you put on a turtle outfit or threw paint against a painting, and I'm all for that. It raises people's awareness. I mean, I, I don't really, I'm not bothered by it. But at the end of the day, you've got to go from that to a realistic plan based on physics. And we, we can sometimes get away from that. You mentioned immigrant food a, a, a few times, and then it's a well-deserved um, kind of recognition because it, in behind the, the whole concept is a, a real concern about immigration and demographics, um, which is uh, definitely one of the political stressors and economic stressors around the world, as well as a, a humanitarian issue. It is accelerating. It is radicalizing politics. Uh, there's signs that, that China is going through a, a population implosion Africans are are growing exponentially. Where do you see immigration and demographics as a trend and what are the ramifications? Well, I can only tell you my views. And when it comes to immigration from an American perspective, I am for a very high wall. I am for a very, very high wall with a very, very big gate. That's always been my philosophy. I am a radical pro-immigration person. I think we are who we are for the reasons I stated earlier. Um, because we're a country of immigrants and both lower skilled, high energy ones and uh, higher skilled, high IQ risk taker ones. I want them all. I, I want every one of them. But we will not maintain a political consensus in this country for what I want unless you can assure people we can control the border. There are too many people who will weaponize, exploit for fear um, and to oppose immigration if people think you can just walk into this country. And I don't think you should be able to just walk into this country. I think you should have to ring the doorbell and knock. And so my way of expressing that is I'm for a very high wall with a very big gate. I want to control the border. And then I want to have a logical managed flow of as many immigrants as fast as we can, as richly as we can uh, to this country. Now, one party's all for the wall and the other's all for the door, you know, the gate. But we obviously need a consensus that melds the two together. And if one day we get there, uh, I will say hallelujah. Let me, let me, as the last question, let me go back to what you so well described as this technology super cycle as one of the two big super cycles that megatrends that we're in. But where is technology going? You have such, such contradictory signals. You know, you've got the Elon Musk's Twitter scandal. Crypto has tanked. The metaverse is in disarray. And, but yet, You know, you look at what, what's happened in Ukraine and so many new ways that the open source technology, uh, COVID, COVID vaccinations, uh, you know, what's happening in Iran would not 
be possible without technology? Where do you, where, where's tech going? Well, tech is everything and its opposite. Um, uh, it depends what values you bring to it. So um, the technologies are stupid. They're, they're morality free. If you have someone running Twitter who says we need to edit, uh, provide editorial control as uh, effectively and as lightly as we possibly can, you're going to get a certain Twitter feed where people aren't just hacking each other's Twitter feeds and presenting themselves uh, in phony ways or using a big platform to spread hate and division. But if you um, if you have someone who's trying to provide uh, the freedom to um, the, the institutional and regulatory control so more people can have this tool um, and use it in more ways that are net positive than not, you'll have another future. So it's all, you know, the great failure of the West is China basically woke up and said, you know, my view of cyberspace is that it's a realm where we're all connected, but no one's in charge. First time in humanity. We have a realm where we're all connected, but no one's in charge. And China basically said, we are going to actually project our Chinese values into Chinese cyberspace, our communist values. You have you can't be anonymous, you know, on their their version of Twitter and Facebook. You want to have a web server, uh, uh, it's a cloud server, it's going to be under their control. You can't have a currency, your own currency called Bitcoin. You can't have encrypted apps outside the control of the government. Now, uh, you know, uh, I'm not saying I would sign up for these, but they basically said, hey, there's this realm here where we're all connected, but no one's in charge. So we're going to be in charge. We're going to project our values into this realm. What do we in the West do? We say, please, Mark, please, Mark, please be nice to us. Please turn down the volume of hate and division spewing out of your platform. If we say pretty, please, would you do that? Elon, please, please, please be nice to us. Please don't put crazy anti-Semites and white supremacists and give them a platform. If if we if we buy Tesla, will you be nice to us? And so that's uh, that's like really messed up, you know. And um, I, I'm not against any of these guys, but we all need rules. And when you control a platform with this much speed, scope, and scale, you need rules even more. So I'm all for freedom from, but I'm really big on freedom too. Whether you're talking about the streets of Tehran or the platform of Twitter. Tom Friedman, what a great way to end! Happy New Year! Thanks for joining us on Altamar. My pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Well, it doesn't get much better than that as we're counting down to the new year. My colleagues, Mooney and Peter, have already gone to um, get some wine and champagne. So I'm here to finish up with you all. We hope you continue listening to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. We will see you next year.